The presidents of Russia and China are in day two of their meeting in Moscow. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken calls the visit diplomatic cover for Russian war crimes. It's Tuesday, March 21st. This is WPUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, former President Donald Trump claims he'll be arrested today as part of an investigation by the Manhattan DA's office. Republicans like Congressman Jim Jordan believe it's politically motivated. It's obvious that this is a sham and something that we want to know were federal funds involved. Did this stem from? It sure looks like it grew out of the special counsel investigation. Also this hour. The time I spent in Abu Ghraib, it ended my life. I'm only half a human now. A detainee from the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq says he's never gotten an apology from the U.S. for being tortured. And this hour, the difficult decisions some people face because of the rising cost of health care. Sunny and near 60 on this first full day of spring, it's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the Biden administration is committed to protecting the banking system and the savings that people have in bank deposits. NPR's Scott Horsley reports Yellen speaks this morning to the American Bankers Association. Yellen says the steps the government has taken to shore up the banking system are working. She notes the amount of money people are pulling out of regional banks has stabilized in recent days. Just over a week ago, the FDIC took extraordinary actions to guarantee all deposits at two failed regional banks, including those over the usual deposit insurance limit of $250,000. Yellen says similar action could be warranted at smaller banks should they suffer the kind of bank run that threatens the wider financial system. Yellen says a mixture of big, small, and medium-sized banks is critical to the health of the U.S. economy. She promised to remain vigilant in protecting a healthy and competitive banking system. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. A New York City grand jury is apparently continuing its investigation into former President Donald Trump over alleged hush money paid to two women over alleged affairs. Trump has maintained he's done nothing wrong. One of the witnesses last week was Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen. But yesterday, another lawyer and Trump ally, Robert Costello, said he also testified. He says Cohen is entirely unreliable and should not be believed. Only after they notified me that Michael Cohen had executed a waiver of the attorney-client privilege for reasons I have no idea. Uh, Frankly, it was a very stupid move by Michael Cohn because now we were able to tell the truth about what Michael Cohn was saying at any point in time starting in April of 2018. No New York court personnel can officially comment on any witness's remarks because grand jury proceedings are secret. Trump has claimed without evidence he'll be arrested today and called for protests. New York City authorities have increased security precautions. Hundreds of thousands of students in Los Angeles are scheduled to be out of school today. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo reports workers are walking off the job. The union representing bus drivers, maintenance workers, and other support staff is beginning a three-day strike today, and the district's teachers are standing in solidarity, effectively shutting down more than a 1,000 schools. The strike comes after more than a year of negotiations for pay and staffing increases and expanded health benefits. The Los Angeles Unified School District is the second big school district in the country, with more than 400,000 students, the majority of whom live at or below the poverty line and depend on schools for far more than just classroom instruction. Even though schools will be closed, the district is working with the city and local volunteers to get students bagged meals, as well as child care for working parents. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News. This is NPR. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Bay State College will not get a new lease on life. The New England Commission for Higher Education upheld its decision to revoke the Boston school's accreditation. WBUR's Max Larkin has reaction from campus. College staff say they're deeply disappointed by the decision. They argue that accreditors rushed to find fault with the school's finances and ignored promising signs of a turnaround. Many students at the school now face what feels like an academic eviction. Lindsay Sheehan, a second-semester student in nursing, says accreditors didn't recognize what the college did right. The professors are awesome at BC. They'll never turn you away. They'll always help you out to feel like... Everything just got ripped out from underneath us. I was like, what do I do now? The college says it accepts the decision and is working to find a pathway to degree completion for each student, either at Bay State or at a nearby institution. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Hospitals in Massachusetts want to be able to spend more money on pay for nurses. They're asking the Health Policy Commission to adjust its target for health care spending. Right now, it's set to stay the same as last year. Hospitals tell the Boston Globe the cap doesn't take into account count what they're spending today. They say they've had to pay more to hire temporary travel nurses during the pandemic. The future of Native American imagery used by another area school will be up for debate tonight. The Foxborough School Board will discuss retiring its high school's warrior mascot and its spear logo. The Sun Chronicle reports some Foxborough board members have expressed support for keeping the warrior's name while changing the logo. The discussion comes as state lawmakers also consider a bill to ban the use of Native American mascots in public schools. The first mother and baby right whale pair of the season have been spotted in Cape Cod Bay. Experts say the two made their way here from Georgia. Stormy Mayo with the Center for Coastal Studies says the biggest risk on the journey for these critically endangered animals is injury from boats. It's an important event because it does indicate that the calf has made it on the long and rather dangerous trip up the East Coast. This little calf, we hope, will add a little something to a population that is really in a catastrophic condition. The annual first sighting of right whales off the Cape has been happening earlier and earlier. Two decades ago, the sighting usually came in April. Climate change may be to blame, but Mayo says that hasn't been scientifically proven yet. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future, supporting the 15th annual MIT Sustainability Summit, focusing on demystifying carbon markets, April 28th. Learn more at sustainabilitysummit.mit.edu and thoughtforms-corp.com. Tonight, the Bruins will host the Ottawa Senators. Meantime, the Celtics will be on the road to play the Sacramento Kings. Sunny today and warm. It'll be near 60, partly cloudy tonight with temperatures falling to the 30s. Partly sunny tomorrow and in the mid-50s, we could get some rain tomorrow night into Thursday. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. What do you do when the leader of your political party faces a criminal investigation? 
Well, Republicans who control the House are supporting Donald Trump once again. The lawmakers are meeting in Florida where they had planned to talk over legislative priorities, but the ex-president seized attention by predicting his own indictment in New York today. He hasn't been indicted, but here's what we know about the case. People close to Trump paid an adult film star to cover up her story of an affair. That led to an investigation by Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney, into falsifying business records. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh has been listening to Republicans as they respond to this in Orlando, Florida. Hey there, Deirdre. Good morning, Steve. Hope the spring weather is good down there. Um, (laughs) It's pretty nice. That's good. How are Republicans defending Trump? They're really standing with him, and they're all largely attacking the New York prosecutor. Centrist Republicans, hardline Republicans are all hammering the same message. They say Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's investigation is politically motivated, and they say it's an abuse of power. House Speaker McCarthy kicked off the press conference down here for this retreat, fielding numerous questions about Trump's claim that he could get arrested, and also he was asked about the former president's call for supporters to protest. McCarthy repeatedly slammed Bragg. He keeps saying he's playing politics with an investigation. But the speaker did break with Trump saying he did not think people should protest. We should note House Republicans now have power. They have the power to investigate. They have the power of oversight. Uh, Are they using that at all when it comes to the former president? They are. They are using it to launch their own investigation of that New York prosecutor, Alvin Bragg. Wait, not investigating Trump, investigating the prosecutor is investigating Trump. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, go on. Three committee chair, House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, House Oversight Chairman Jim Comer, and House Administration Committee Brian Stiles sent a joint letter yesterday demanding Bragg turn over documents, appear in person before their panels. Jordan told reporters yesterday they all want details about Bragg's probe. It's obvious that this is a sham and something that we want to know. Were federal funds involved? Did this stem from it? Sure looks like it grew out of the special counsel investigation because those are the legislative concerns we have as, as Congress. In their letter, they raised questions about whether any federal money that the DA's office received was involved in this particular probe. Bragg, for his part, has not indicated any timeline for when his investigation may be completed. He's just saying he's going to continue to follow the facts. Um, I guess it's a familiar story that uh, the political conversation is all about Donald Trump, as it has often been in the past, um, and less about what Congress might do, what legislation might pass. Do House Republican leaders have anything they want to do themselves? They do. I mean, they are talking about hearings on the banking crisis, passing bills dealing with border security. They have a parent's bill of rights they're talking about that's coming up on the floor soon. But Donald Trump still looms really large over the Republican Party. And this controversy has just really stepped all over their message down here. It just shows he continues to be the dominant player. Lawmakers are denouncing the prosecutor and echoing Trump's message about political bias. But they're not really commenting on the former president's behavior. They're just sort of dismissing the whole thing as, oh, this is all about politics. But privately, I have spoken with several Republicans down here in Orlando who represent swing districts. Some of them are ready to move on and potentially get behind another top Republican on the ticket in 2024, someone like the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. But he hasn't announced he's running for president. And I will say lawmakers are really reluctant to get crosswise with the Republican base Mm -hmm. because Donald Trump is still really popular with their voters. And Bears Walsh, thanks so much. Thank you. 
The sudden collapse of California-based Silicon Valley Bank has raised concerns over the health of the U.S. banking sector. A new study suggests that close to 190 other U.S. banks could face a similar fate if just half of their depositors withdraw their cash. This includes smaller, minority-owned community banks that support people of color in a way that bigger banks don't. Joining me now is Nicole Elam, president and CEO of the National Bankers Association that represents America's minority-owned financial institutions. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So I want to start with that big question. Does all this turmoil have an outsized impact on America's minority-owned banks? Absolutely. The bank failures have led to deposit flight as we're seeing customers withdraw their funds and take it to banks that uh, the public taught them or actually the government taught them in 2008 are too big to fail. And Mm. so we are spending a lot of time educating customers that their money is safe with minority banks. In fact, 98% of all deposit accounts at minority banks are under $250,000 and thus fully FDIC insured. But we're seeing a lot of deposit flight. And a lot of these minority-owned banks are the smaller banks that are more fearful now that people will pull their money to go to the bigger institutions. Absolutely. The average asset size of a minority bank is under $400 million. So these are the smallest of the small banks. But these are also the banks that have an outsized impact in the community. Minority banks are located in communities that are 77% minority. Compare that to all other banks, which are located in communities that are only 31% minority. So they are significant providers of mortgages and small business loans in the communities that they sit in and serve. And if you could just talk about what's so important about securing the health of minority owned banks so they can exist, continue to exist, especially as it relates to what they offer to people of color compared to the big financial institutions and the history of how they've treated people of color, especially black people. That's a great question. So minority banks were actually born out of racism because black, brown, and immigrant communities could not go to mainstream financial institutions for their banking services. The reality of it is is that 100 years later, data continues to show that these banks are significant providers of mortgages and small business loans. If you are black, brown, or immigrant, you are more likely to have access to financial services. You are more likely to get approved for a mortgage, more likely to get approved for a small business loan if you have a minority bank brand sitting in your community. And so these are the ones that are were the ones that were pushing out PPP loans during the pandemic. They're the ones that have been providing access to financial services. They're the ones saying yes when other banks are saying no to these underserved communities. But even before this turmoil started, the number of Black-owned banks specifically have been declining over the last two decades. Why is that? Why is that happening? A lot of it has to do with these banks being historically undercapitalized. At its peak, there were 134 black banks. Today, there are only 21. The reason why is because these banks don't have access to the same capital markets as larger mainstream financial institutions. So whenever there is an economic downturn, these banks are hit hard, oftentimes hit hard like the communities that they serve, so Mm -hmm. they're forced to close. What's been different, though, is that uh, over the last three years, you have seen the public, private, and philanthropic sector infuse huge amounts of capital into these banks in this post-pandemic, post-George Floyd environment, as they have realized that these banks are key to helping to close the wealth gap. And so you've seen black banks in particular grow in asset size by 56% in the last three years. Have you seen four to five billion dollars flow into these banks? So right now in this moment of turmoil and uncertainty, what would you like the Biden administration to do to ensure that smaller community banks are safe for depositors? 
Two things, I would like them to reinstate full deposit insurance coverage for depositors for the next one to two years. I think that will restore public confidence in the banking system and it will also level the playing field because what's happened is that the government has created this two-tier banking system that there are banks that are too big to fail and everyone else. Nicole Elam, president and CEO of the National Bankers Association. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. All right, I woke up yesterday morning. It was 26 degrees in Washington, D.C. But then by the afternoon, it was in the 50s and felt like spring because it is spring and people around the world are celebrating what's called the Persian New Year, Nowruz, which dates back thousands of years and is a holiday to mark the start of spring. Today, it is observed by people of multiple faiths and ethnicities. Yeah, and for those of the Baha'i faith, like Iraj Kamalabadi, the holiday ends 19 days of fasting from dawn to dusk. Mm. Families are not always together. They're separated. Some are back home in Iran and some are here. Kamalabadi should know because he came to the United States from Iran in 1977. We spoke with another man who practices the Baha'i faith and hopes to return to Iran, which is why he asked us to withhold his name. In Iran, there is always that fear of being recognized or being identified as a Baha'i in the public. About 300,000 people are of the Baha'i faith in Iran, but they're not allowed to practice their religion in public. In fact, Mr. Kamalabadi says his father was jailed and mistreated in Iran. His younger sister was imprisoned four times and is currently serving a 10-year sentence on spying charges, all of which makes his Nowruz experience in the United States hard. It gives you a feeling of loneliness. Ilham Abbasi says she was barred from higher education in Iran because of her Baha'i faith. I had friends that I saw them going to the university, getting their education, but I didn't have that privilege. She fled to Lahore, Pakistan with her family and was finally able to celebrate openly with the Iranian community in her refugee camp. Baha'is have freedom in Pakistan. They had their celebrations, their feasts, their gatherings with no problems. And we should note again, people of multiple faiths in multiple countries do celebrate Nowruz. I was at a Nowruz celebration once in, in Iraq. A typical Nowruz feast might feature dishes of rice with nuts or raisins, barbecued lamb and beef kebab and lots of fresh herbs and yogurt. I'm hungry now. Me too. That sounds so delicious. It's also a time for prayer and reflection. I am always hopeful. We don't hold any animosity towards our persecutors. We love all humanity equally. A spiritual journey that Kamalabadi says helps him see a future free of repression. There's always hope for humanity to leave. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we continue to mark 20 years since the start of the war in Iraq by revisiting Abu Ghraib, the notorious prison where U.S. officials tortured Iraqis. And coming up at 8, Israel's president says the country is on the verge of civil war as people continue massive protests against an overhaul of the judicial system. Right now, it's 719.
Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series. Chinake Orchestra performs Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, Stuart Goodyear, and Florence Price, March 22nd at Jordan Hall, CelebritySeries.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, mental health care mandated by a court. Massachusetts is one of only three states where a judge can't mandate outpatient mental health care. Should they be able to? From the newsroom, reporter Deborah Becker takes us into the debate. That's Radio Boston Today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell has told cities and towns they have to zone for multifamily housing projects near transit stations. But some communities are resisting that requirement. So what comes next? That issue is the focus of today's episode of The Common. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny today with a high near 58. It'll also be pretty windy. Tonight, clouds move in and temperatures fall to a low around 39. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high near 52. Right now, it's 36 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from IFC Films with The Lost King. From the makers of Philomena comes the story of an amateur historian who believes she has found the lost burial site of England's notorious Richard III, only in theaters March 24th. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike protection that powers you. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Some of the ugliest images of the American invasion of Iraq 20 years ago came in 2004 in photos taken at the Abu Ghraib prison. And a warning to our listeners, this story contains graphic descriptions of the torture of prisoners in U.S. incarceration. The photos were shocking, and what happened haunts former detainees. American troops stripped Iraqi prisoners naked. They leashed them and forced them into contorted or sexual positions. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has this report from Baghdad. It's been almost two decades since Talib al-Majli came out of Abu Ghraib prison, but it could have been yesterday. Desperately thin still, with dark circles round his eyes, Majli bites at the skin of his wrist, a nervous tick he developed in the prison. The time I spent in Abu Ghraib, it ended my life. I'm only half a human now, Majli says. He shows me his prison card and other documents. He was detained on the 31st of October 2003 and became prisoner 152516 in Abu Ghraib. Through an interpreter, he tells me about some of the abuse. They're torturing us. They making us naked. Sometimes they threw that sound grenades on ourselves, and sometimes they use the shotguns and they killed two of prisoners. 
and they used the, these dogs to terrifying us. They, they flooded our cells with, with water. One photo that shocked people around the world when it was published in 2004 shows naked detainees with bags over their heads, piled on top of each other in a grotesque human pyramid. One American soldier grins, another gives a thumbs up. Majli says he believes he is one of the men in that photo. Does he remember what he was thinking and what he felt when he was in that pile? I wished for death, Majli tells me. I would rather have been dead than to be in that position. There was other demeaning treatment too, like being poked with a stick in his genitals. One day, Majli tried to appeal to a soldier to say he was innocent and that he should be let go. They put him in solitary confinement for a week. Majli says he was detained when he was simply visiting an uncle. He swears he never took part in the insurgency against the US. He was eventually released after one year and four months with no charges against him. U.S. military intelligence officers later told the International Committee for the Red Cross that as many as 90% of Iraqis detained were actually arrested by mistake. Majli says when the U.S. invasion began, he wanted to thank George Bush from the bottom of his heart for removing Saddam Hussein from power. But he says this good deed became my curse. Now in his 50s, Majli lives with his two adult sons in a home made of two rooms with an outside toilet in a slum in Baghdad. On the day we visited, water from the rain pooled on the mud street outside. Majli has moved many times since his release from Abu Ghraib, sometimes in search of work, but also because of the stigma, he says, he felt from his neighbours when they learned of the degrading treatment he suffered. But it's not his fault. It was something that was done to him. Majli acknowledges this, but says other people didn't see it this way. His boys quit their school because they were so badly bullied, and he says his wife left him because she was embarrassed. Since his release, he says he's suffered from depression. He self-harms. Bite marks up and down his arms. He works odd jobs, hanging signs for companies, sometimes earning around $30 per week. If he had to summarize what the experience in this imprisonment did to his life, what would he say? I lost my family, it destroyed my health situation, destroyed my living situation, destroyed everything for me. And I always feel I was humiliated. Majli tried for years to find ways to get compensation from the US. But he had no money to hire a lawyer. And when he went to the Iraqi Bar Association, they told him they didn't deal with these kinds of cases. The Iraqi Ministry for Human Rights confirmed he'd been a prisoner in Abu Ghraib, but that was all. 
A US military official now, who didn't want to be named because he wasn't approved to speak, speculated that Majli should have been able to apply to the US military for condolence payments, sometimes made in conflict. It was difficult for Iraqis to apply for compensation in those years. Bahar Azmi, a lawyer with the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York, says the US hasn't been making payments to victims of torture and that this violates international law. Instead, it's been denying compensation for victims of torture in Abu Ghraib and in CIA black sites, denying compensation to those who the United States quite literally kidnapped and speared away under the extraordinary rendition program to third countries. Eleven soldiers were convicted of crimes in Abu Ghraib, and Azmi did manage to secure some compensation for some other Abu Ghraib victims, but only from a private security firm whose translators operated in the prison, and not from the US military. Azmi didn't know about Majli, but says the case sounds consistent with others, but he probably can't get compensation now. It's heartbreaking, but I think it's too late. Majli says not a day goes by without him thinking about what happened to him. It's as if his life is frozen in time by his need for justice or some kind of recognition. He says this is why he's talking to me. I want to make this a matter of public opinion, to ask for my rights. Even, he says, just for an apology. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Baghdad. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up here on Morning Edition, Chinese President Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin continue their visit in Moscow today. China says they've discussed Ukraine, but there are no signs of a breakthrough. And coming up at 8.15, President Biden designates two new national monuments today. Listen to that here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. It's 7.29. Coming to City Space on Tuesday, April 4th, Olympian and long-distance runner Kara Goucher. She'll discuss her new memoir about one of the biggest scandals in running history. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, rewarding community heroes during their first responder days now through March 22nd. For details, visit oceanstatejoblot.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Economists appear divided on whether the Federal Reserve might pause its string of interest rate hikes at this week's policy meeting. As Steve Beckner reports, concerns about the banking industry have gotten a lot of attention since Fed Chair Jerome Powell signaled another rate increase was likely. Two weeks ago, Powell warned the Fed might return to a faster pace of rate hikes to counter worse-than-expected inflation. But then two large bank failures forced the Fed and other authorities into emergency actions to protect the banking system. Now Fed policymakers face a tough choice between focusing on price stability and guarding financial stability. The Federal Reserve has raised interest rates eight times since early last year to try to bring down inflation in the economy. Separately, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is expected to speak this morning to the American Bankers Association. 
Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is on an unannounced visit to Ukraine. He's due to meet with the country's President Volodymyr Zelensky as China's President Xi Jinping continues his meetings in Moscow with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine is expected to dominate the discussions in both capitals. The U.S. and NATO have expressed concerns about Beijing potentially providing support to Russia. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Housing advocates in Massachusetts want to extend a pandemic-era policy that would prevent evictions. The policy is set to expire at the end of this month. It requires eviction cases to be paused when a tenant has submitted an application for rental aid. The policy has been extended in the past. Asian-American students in Boston public schools are more likely to feel undervalued compared to their classmates of different races. That's according to a new report from the Massachusetts Asian-American Educators Association. The study finds that Asian-American students feel the least physically safe at school. They also don't feel like their classes are relevant to their culture. Nearly 9 percent of BPS students are Asian-American. The Boston Lyric Opera premieres a new production this week of the 1918 opera Bluebeard's Castle. WBUR's Jen Stanley reports the show will run through Sunday in a unique spot. Boston Lyric Opera has transformed the Flynn Cruise port into a mysterious duke's fortress of riches and horrors. The immersive production pushes the boundaries of what audiences might expect from the art form. Director Anne Bogart says the glory of opera is in the wide spectrum of sensation it elicits. I would say not to worry whether you understand opera or you have the, you know, the right background or training to understand it, but just bring all of your senses and open your senses to the experience. The one-act show is paired with Alma Mahler's composition cycle, Four Songs. The performance runs 90 minutes with no intermission. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jen Stanley. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Celtics wrap up their six-game road trip tonight as they visit the Sacramento Kings. The Bruins will be at the Garden tonight to play the Ottawa Senators. At spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox fell to the Pirates 7-5. to The Sox will play the Orioles this afternoon. Clear skies and windy today with highs in the upper 50s, mostly cloudy tonight, and we may dip into the 30s. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds will have highs in the low 50s. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, exploring how to fight a protein that keeps cancer cells alive. Learn more about Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery at DanaFarber.org slash stories. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. China's President Xi Jinping is in Moscow for the second day of a state visit with Russia's Vladimir Putin. The meetings are being closely watched in the West for how they might affect the war in Ukraine. And here's Charles Maines is on the line from Moscow. Good morning. Good morning. 
So Charles, bring us up to speed on what's happened. And is there any clarity on what it might mean for the war in Ukraine? Yeah, you know, she presented this trip as a mission to promote peace in Ukraine, uh, but it's been balanced with and maybe even overshadowed by uh, what are clearly efforts to show unity with Russia and with President Vladimir Putin in particular. You know, Russia's military campaign is struggling, the country is under Western sanctions, and now you have this international court issuing an arrest warrant for Putin uh, for alleged war crimes. So for Putin, you know, Xi's visit comes at a critical time and the Kremlin pulled out all the stops. What does that look like when the Kremlin pulls out all the stops? Well, you know, there was a military marching band to greet Xi as he arrived at the tarmac. Uh, here's a taste. And authorities also basically shut down Moscow so Xi's entourage could move around the city and that snarled traffic all day. Uh, but inside the Kremlin, Putin got what he was after. You know, in front of cameras, Xi addressed him as a dear friend and complimented Putin's leadership. And Putin repaid the flattery in kind while endorsing Xi's efforts as a peacemaker in Ukraine. So here Putin says he's carefully studied a set of Chinese proposals aimed at ending the fighting and said he was open to discussing them with Xi. And then they disappeared behind closed doors for one-on-one -on -one talks and a dinner that went nearly five hours. Was there any hint of a breakthrough? Well, not yet, uh, although we've learned this morning that she has invited Putin to visit China later this year. Uh, meanwhile, many in the West are very skeptical of these talks, and that includes U.S. Secretary of State Blinken. Uh, yesterday, Blinken warned that a ceasefire would de facto reward Russian aggression and allow Putin time to rebuild his army, maybe even with Chinese assistance. And Blinken also says, look, you know, if, if China is so committed to ending the war, why not get Russia to pull back its forces? But that's clearly not what Putin wants. He insists that Ukraine recognize newly annexed territories seized by Moscow. And it's not entirely clear that's what President Xi wants. In fact, during yesterday's comments to the press, she didn't address uh, Ukraine at all. Okay, but why would she float a peace plan he doesn't intend to pursue? Well, you know, China certainly wouldn't mind the prestige of being the one to negotiate a peace deal. But China also clearly endorses Putin's argument the Ukraine conflict is part of this wider battle with the West. In fact, that same West that she thinks is trying to contain China. So Beijing doesn't want to see Moscow lose outright. And there are, you know, economic considerations as well. You know, she doesn't want to fundamentally upset trade relations with the West, which are core to China's economic growth. And yet he frankly doesn't mind Russia's dependence on China due to Western sanctions. It's allowed Beijing to cut bargain deals for, say, Russian oil and gas. Mm. So a delicate balancing act there. Charles, these talks continue today. What can we expect? Yeah, in fact, uh, today is the start of the official state visit. There's a huge Chinese delegation of over 100 people, so we'll see all sorts of ministerial meetings and what sounds like a pretty spectacular dinner in the Kremlin Hall where Ivan the Terrible, the Tsar, used to dine back in the 16th century. Uh, and the two leaders are supposed to address the media. So beyond all the fetting, we may get an answer to this kind of fundamental question, with Xi having provided a lifeline to Putin. Uh, what does Xi want, now want in exchange? NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thanks so much, Charles. Thank you. Many people facing higher food and housing costs are paying the bills by putting off critical medical care. WUSF Stephanie Colombini reports from Florida's Gulf Coast. In the Newtown neighborhood of Sarasota, people were milling about in a parking lot where doctors had set up a health screenings event. Tracy Green joined a line outside a pink and white bus to get free mammograms. To see if I have cancer or any kind of things going on with my breath. Green says her breasts cause her severe back pain and says a doctor once recommended she get reduction surgery. 
but she can't afford it. The 54-year-old says her teeth are in bad shape too, but they'll also have to wait. Green doesn't have health insurance. She also doesn't have a stable job and finds work as a day laborer when she can through a local temp office. I only make like 60, 70 something dollars a day. You know, they ain't making no money. And some days you go in there, they don't have work. In another state, Green may have been able to get on Medicaid, but Florida is one of 11 that still haven't expanded the program to cover more working age adults. With rent and other bills to pay, Green says her health is taking a back seat. I don't have money to go to the dentist, nothing. It's so expensive now to get one extraction, one tooth pull. It's like 200, 300 some dollars that you don't have. I don't know what to do. It's like fighting a losing battle right now. Nearly 40% of Americans say they put off medical treatment last year due to cost, according to a Gallup poll published in January. It's a 12-point increase from the year before and the highest since Gallup started tracking the issue in 2001. The country experienced record high inflation last year, and parts of Florida, like nearby Tampa, sometimes fared even worse. We see an increasing desperation. Dr. Lisa Merritt helped organize this fair as head of the Multicultural Health Institute. Her nonprofit helps people access low-cost care and is based in Newtown. Many people here live below the poverty line, lack insurance, and face other challenges. It's very difficult for people to be concerned about abstract things like getting screenings, regular health maintenance, when they're contending with the challenges of basic survival, food, shelter transportation often. Longtime volunteer Bonnie Hardy says residents she works with have a lot of financial worries, but one thing tops the list. Right now, a place to stay. Housing is horrible. High housing costs have started to ease in recent months, but data shows rent in Sarasota has still gone up nearly 50 percent since the pandemic began in 2020. Hardy helps people find housing and connects them with programs that cover costs like utilities and security deposits. She says helping people stabilize their day-to-day -day lives can lead to better health. Because they're more comfortable now. They feel like, hey, the rent is paid, I can let my guards down, maybe I can go get the medical attention I need. Research shows putting off health care can lead to bigger problems. And in the recent Gallup poll, more than a quarter of respondents admitted they had delayed treatment for serious conditions. That's good. Is that? Is that At the health fair, a substitute teacher who doesn't have insurance was getting her blood pressure checked. She found out it was a little high, but not enough to need medication. Yes, got to care yourself. She smiled with relief. If it had been worse, the health workers here say they try to help her find affordable treatment. But in a state like Florida and the economy the way it is, that's not always an option. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie Columbini in Sarasota. The story comes from NPR's partnership with WUSF and Kaiser Health News. This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, we look at President Biden's first veto since taking office. He rejected a Republican-backed idea that he says could be bad for your retirement savings. And in our next hour, hundreds of L.A. schools are closed today as employees begin a three-day strike. <laughs> 
Sunny and windy today in the upper 50s, partly overcast tonight in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, partly sunny and in the low 50s. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 742. WBUR supporters include Clark, where you can begin your kitchen project by exploring Sub-Zero and Wolf Appliances. Details about showrooms in Boston and Milford at ClarkLiving.com. Amazon's plans to acquire Bedford-based iRobot could soon be challenged in court. Politico reports its sources within the Federal Trade Commission say the agency could move to block the deal in the next few months. Critics of the $1.7 billion deal argue it would give Amazon too much control over the household robot market and put consumer privacy at risk. Ten chambers of commerce across Massachusetts are forming an organization to advocate on policy. The goal of the new Chambers Policy Network is to improve the business climate and quality of life in the state. James Rooney is the president of the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce. He hopes the joint effort will help influence state legislation. We all share across the Commonwealth a feeling that our collective voice can be more impactful than our individual voices as regional chambers. Rooney expects the group to focus on what can be done to retain workers in the state. The former owner of Legal Seafoods is entering the prepared meals market. Roger Berkowitz is calling his new venture Roger's Fish & Co. It will be based out of a facility in New Hampshire. It's 744. On much of Germany's Audubon network, you can drive as fast as your car can go. But a movement to introduce a blanket speed limit is gaining momentum, and that is leading to some soul-searching. The Autobahn is connected to a Nazi idea that, like, all Germans are a harmonious nation. More on the Audubon's place in German culture on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Falden. President Biden has vetoed his first bill. Legislation passed by the Congress would put at risk the retirement savings of individuals across the country. The bill would stop retirement fund managers from considering environmental, social, and governance factors, or ESG. To help us understand why ESG-conscious investments are now political, we'll turn to Jeffrey Sonnenfield. He's a professor of management at Yale University. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for being here. So first, Jeffrey, if you could just briefly define what it means to consider environmental, social, and governance factors around finances. Well, thanks, Layla. I've been studying uh, corporate social impact uh, work for about uh, oh, almost 50 years, and it, it's grouped together different types of corporate social performance. The mm-hmm. environmental has to do with sustainability, of course, and, and, and what we used to call conservation. Uh, social has to do with uh, de- dealings with race and gender and, and other factors such as that in the community. And then governance has to do with who's in control and the transparency and the independence and 
the integrity of the leadership, the oversight of the company. So why has this become a political issue? I mean, this is a rule at the Department of Labor, and now something it's something lawmakers, mostly Republican, want to change. It's bewildering. It catches our attention today just because this is Biden's first veto, and his three predecessors each vetoed about perhaps 12 bills during their terms, and Ronald Reagan was the high watermark, almost 80 that he vetoed. But it was unusual because this is Biden's first. But the idea of it's also called stakeholder capitalism, considering, considering others in addition to shareholders, uh, that's not new. In fact, 50 years ago, the Business Roundtable was created of business leaders just to focus on the fact that doing good is not antithetical to doing well. What's new is the backlash against it. And there's a lot of GOP political grandstanding uh, trying to use this term of woke or being, you know, awakened to social impact. Uh, and that's how this has become kind of a rallying cry, even in tortured use into the Silicon Valley bank collapse, where it has zero relationship. They, they try to invoke it. And right now it's been trying to uh, invoke it uh, in how pension money is invested. So how does ESG affect the financial performance of companies or investments? Well, it, it, doing good, as I said, is often corresponds with doing well. There's a great deal of research that shows there's no trade-off. And in fact, many times the environmentally responsible or the ESG, the, the uh, oriented firms have performed better. So, some of the hard part is there's been a confusion of terms and definitions. So I'm so glad you asked for it. Uh, but there are about 836 registered investment companies claiming ESG missions. It has become a bit of a fad. And some of it's legitimate and some of it's a little bit confusing. But it's, we're, we're approaching $53 trillion of, you know, almost a third of all global assets are coming under this term. And it has a lot of GOP legislators concerned because of what they argue is political overtones and issues they don't like on race, gender, environment, and, and the like. But, you know, we have shown that of the 1,500 companies pulling out, of Russia, that those who pull it out uh, did actually much better. And you see that in a lot of a lot of dimensions. Professor Jeffrey Sonnenfield at Yale University. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Another hour of Morning Edition is still ahead. Then at 11, it's Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. Let me take you to 11, shall we? Please. <laughs> oh, please. This one goes to 11. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, we've got lots of variety on the show today. We're going to start with WBUR's own Deb Becker, mm-hmm. who's been reporting on a proposal in the legislature to allow courts to court mandate outpatient mental health treatment. It it turns out, of course, the courts can mandate uh, uh, involuntary hospitalization uh, for up to three days, but it turns out we're only one of three states in the union where a court can't mandate outpatient mental health treatment. Mm. But it's very controversial. Deb's going to take us into the debate. Who wants it and why? Who doesn't and why, et cetera? Um, Really, I think, an important one to watch. And then we're going to scurry into the woods with Katie Garrity, born and raised in Gloucester, playing Little Red Riding Hood in the production of Into the Woods on Broadway and now the touring group. It opens today. She's just going to chat with us about... 
Well, I think we have a video of the first time she sang the Red Riding Hood song. She was seven, wow. and now she's on Broadway. Oh, fun. And then the chief of protocol of the United States is bringing ambassadors, a whole bunch of them, to the city next week, and we'll talk about that. That's too. exciting. Okay, thank you, TCMS. Lots. Lots. <laughs> That's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 7.50. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like Six, out of this world. Five, and liftoff of Artemis One. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Our colleague Ari Shapiro begins a new memoir by recounting what he did in first grade says he and his brother were the only Jewish kids at their school in Fargo, North Dakota, and at Christmas time they went around explaining what Hanukkah was. Not all that many years later, Ari Shapiro went to work at NPR, and according to the NPR archives from back in 2003, he was still explaining Judaism to everybody else. At the Passover celebration in the first century B.C., Rabbi Hillel smeared bitter herbs in an apple nut mixture called haroset between two slices of unleavened bread, or matzah. It may not have been the first sandwich ever made, but it's the first in recorded history. Ari Shapiro, 20 years ago, doesn't sound that much different. Since then, he's become a correspondent, traveled much of the world, covered conflicts and elections, become host of NPR's All Things Considered, our afternoon program, and also is a singer who tours with the group Pink Martini, often singing in multiple languages. I'm out of breath just saying all that. Shapiro's new memoir reflects on his varied life. It's called The Best Strangers in the World. Are you still, in some sense, that first grader going around saying, let me tell you what Judaism is? Yeah, what I picked up as the first grader who was the, like, only Jewish kid in his class and later picked up as, like, the only out gay teenager in my high school was the ability to go to a crowd of people and say, this is unfamiliar, but I'm going to help you understand it. In a passage of his book, Shapiro recounts interviewing a man who suddenly told him, probably you're on the radio because you want to be loved. Shapiro doesn't deny it. You interrogate yourself a little bit in this memoir, and you ask if maybe the common theme in your career is that you want attention. Well, that's certainly an aspect of it. I, I tell a story about it. My grandmother's 90th birthday party, my mother was introducing her three sons. She said, and then there's my middle son, Ari, who was so ignored as a middle child, he had to find a job where millions of people would pay attention to what he had to say. So sure, that's a piece of it. Like, I do like being on stage at the Hollywood Bowl in front of thousands of people. But even more than that, I like finding the story of somebody who we would never otherwise hear from and bring them into your home, into your car, into your life, and hopefully, maybe, help you see the world a little differently. He's often tried to see the world for himself, as in 2013, when a gunman killed 49 people at a Florida nightclub. And we have a team of reporters in Orlando, um, including our co-host, Ari Shapiro. And Ari, I understand you're in downtown Orlando. I am downtown, and you might be able to hear the news helicopters above me, which has been a frequent sound since I arrived here. I volunteered to go cover that story because I had been to gay bars, and I knew the importance of them. And I had been to gay bars in Orlando. And 
one of the things I explore in the book is kind of the tension between bringing your full self to any story that you tell and approaching stories as an outsider. And with the Pulse nightclub shooting, I knew I brought something to that story that other journalists did not. The experience and the history and the perspective that I brought to those stories made them better, not worse. They didn't compromise me as a journalist. They enhanced what I was doing as a journalist. I'm interested in the two kinds of experiences you're describing just in this conversation. You described there being a kind of insider to the story. Mm -hmm. And we also began with the story of you as one of the very few Jewish kids in Fargo being the outsider <laughs> yeah. to the story. Each has its value, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think about going to coastal Turkey when uh, the Syrian refugee crisis was at its peak. And there is a negative stereotype of foreign correspondents as parachuting into a place that they know nothing about. And there are absolutely pitfalls to that. But also seeing something with fresh eyes and coming to something as an outsider and asking what may be very naive questions can lead you to profound insights as well. Ari Shapiro not only reported on refugees, he sang about them. This is a song in Arabic that Pink Martini wrote the melody for in the 90s. They recorded it as a Spanish tune. And for a recent album, Jadiwi, we asked a dear friend of the band who has since passed away named Yad Qasem if he would reimagine the lyrics in Arabic. And so he wrote this song that sounds like it's about someone pining for a lost love, if you listen to the lyrics, but he told us what he had in mind was the experience of a refugee longing for the homeland he might never see again. His own parents were refugees. And so he renamed the song after something his mother always used to say, which is, there's no breeze as sweet as the breeze of home. And so the new title of the song is Finismadi, which means in the sweet summer breeze. Finismadi Fitefa Matinsanish Hanna Ainelek Fisuel and before Iyad passed away, he would go on tour with us, and Pink Martini would do this song. I would do this song in Lebanon, in Morocco, in uh, Tunisia, in Abu Dhabi, and he would introduce the song and talk about its importance to him. And then he would say how meaningful it was for him to have his Jewish friend sing it. Iyad is Palestinian, and so we would hug together on stage, and then I would sing the song. People just embraced in the other room. Was that the music that caused that? I don't know what's going on. Brings people together, the music. Apparently so. It's really, really beautiful. Uh, do you speak Arabic? No. Uh, I sing with Pink Martini in lots of languages that I don't speak. Anytime I'm recording for an album, I make sure to get language coaches who... I actually had two language coaches for that song. One who was Lebanese, one who was Egyptian, because it's in the Egyptian dialect of Arabic. It was ah. very specific. Um, but I want to do justice whether I'm singing in Armenian... Arabic, Ladino, Spanish, all of which I've recorded in with Pink Martini and none of which I speak. Did it ever not work on stage? Yeah. There was a time in Lebanon. We were performing at this gorgeous ancient palace called Betadine as part of this music festival. And um, after the show, the organizers of the music festival approached Iyad and said it was unnecessary of him to inform the audience that I'm Jewish. What did you think of that? Well, you know, what I thought was a word that I can't say on public radio, but there's you only can so say much it. We you can do. Can okay, I thought, f*** them. Okay. <laughs> I thought, f*** them. And so Iyad and I 
you know, hand in hand, arm in arm, walked into the after party, ate baklava and had a great time. We do what we can. We can't force people to be open minded. The memoir from Ari Shapiro is called The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening. Thanks for coming across the hall. It's been a pleasure, Steve. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fadel. Ari Shapiro will be at WBUR City Space this Sunday to talk more about his book. The event will be hosted by WBUR's Lisa Mullins. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. A grateful first day of spring today. It'll be sunny, windy, and near 60. Tonight it falls back into the 30s and some clouds move in. Tomorrow a little cooler in the low 50s under partly sunny skies. It's 37 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm evening host Garo Hagopian, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Republican allies of former President Trump are pushing to investigate the Manhattan prosecutor who Trump claims will indict him today. It's Tuesday, March 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in a win for tribal nations, President Biden is set to designate two new national monuments today in Nevada and Texas. I'm committed to protecting this sacred place that is central to the creation story of so many tribes that are here today. Plus, support staff in the nation's second largest school district are planning a walkout over stalled contract talks. L.A. teachers say they'll join the strikers. And this hour... We have six dancers who portray, in a way, all women whose creativity has been squashed, and they maybe take revenge. We get a sneak peek of the Boston Lyric Opera's new production of Bluebeard's Castle. Sunny and near 60 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News from Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Chinese President Xi Jinping is on the second day of his state visit to Russia. NPR's Charles Maine says the West is watching for clues about how the talks could affect the war in Ukraine. She presented this trip as a mission to promote peace in Ukraine, uh, but it's been balanced with and maybe even overshadowed by uh, what are clearly efforts to show unity with Russia and with President Vladimir Putin in particular. You know, Russia's military campaign is struggling, the country is under Western sanctions, and now you have this international court issuing an arrest warrant for Putin for alleged war crimes. So for Putin, you know, Xi's visit comes at a critical time, and the Kremlin pulled down all the stops. NPR's Charles Maines reporting. President Xi has now invited President Putin to visit Beijing. Meanwhile, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is visiting Ukraine. He'll meet Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky today in Kyiv. French President Emmanuel Macron speaks to his nation tomorrow after his government narrowly survived a no-confidence vote in parliament. There is fury over an unpopular pension overhaul act. Lisa Bryant reports from Paris angry workers are continuing their strikes. President Macron faces a big challenge, calming an angry nation when he's interviewed on French TV. 
The leader of the leftist Nupes coalition says the president's government is dead as the no-confidence motion lost by only nine votes. One commentary wonders, can he still govern for four more years? That's a question political analyst Nicole Bacharon is also asking. No matter how Macron comes out of this crisis, he will be very, very much weakened. That's a sure thing. Unions have called for nationwide strikes and protests Thursday. French drivers are feeling an immediate fallout, dry gas stations in parts of the country. For NPR News, I'm Lisa Bryant in Paris. President Biden has signed a COVID-19 transparency bill that sailed through Congress. NPR's Giles Snyder reports the measure requires the publication of as much information as possible on COVID's origins. President Biden said in a statement that he shares Congress's goal of releasing information about the origin of COVID-19, pledging that his administration will now declassify and share the intelligence it's gathered, except for information deemed harmful to national security. The bill he signed requires the Director of National Intelligence to declassify what the intelligence community has learned about the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That's a Chinese lab at the center of the lab leak theory. The U.S. intelligence community is divided over that ex explanation were animals being the likely source of the virus. The bill easily passed both the Senate and the House with no opposition. Trial Snyder, NPR News. A school support union is starting a three-day strike today against the Los Angeles Unified School District. Thousands of teachers are observing the strike. Los Angeles public schools are closed. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new United Nations report says the world must cut greenhouse gas emissions in half by the end of the decade. It says that's the only way to avoid the worst effects of climate change. And as WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, cities like Boston have a big role to play. The report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says that focusing on reducing emissions in urban areas offers some of the biggest bang for the buck. Rachel Kalidas is with the Union of Concerned Scientists. She says one good target area for Boston is greener buildings. Making sure that our buildings are low carbon, shifting energy use to clean electricity as much as possible, investing in uh, solar energy on rooftops. Kalidas says Boston has been a leader on climate action, but the UN report calls for city, state, and local governments to move faster. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Bay State College in Boston will permanently close this summer. The New England Commission for Higher Education is upholding its decision to revoke the college's accreditation status. That follows a series of financial concerns for the school and accusations that it defrauded students. School officials are now working to help students graduate or transfer to another school. An adult education program in Framingham is trying to prepare immigrant students to get a driver's license. In July, a new state law will allow residents to get a license regardless of immigration status. The English class at Framingham Adult ESL Plus covers everything from car parts to the application process. The program's director, Kevin O'Connor, says mobility is vital in many of his students' lives. When people need to get from their home to their child's school, to their job, pick their child up, get them home, come to English classes at night, that sort of life would be impossible without the ability to drive, at least in in our area of Metro West. The first class of 20 adult students started lessons in February. They'll take their road tests in July. 
Some Boston city officials want to make it easier to keep bees in the city. Most Boston neighborhoods don't allow beekeeping. The city council's proposal would lift those bans. It would also simplify the application to keep bees. Counselors tell Mass Live changing the law will bring more beekeepers to low-income communities. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot. Rewarding community heroes during their first responder days, now through March 22nd. For details, visit OceanStateJobLot.com. The Bruins are back home tonight to skate with the Ottawa Senators. The Celtics will be in Sacramento to take on the Kings. Sunny today and warm. It'll be near 60. Partly cloudy tonight with temperatures falling to the 30s. Partly sunny tomorrow and in the mid-50s. We could get some rain tomorrow night into Thursday. It's 38 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Hundreds of thousands of students are set to stay home today in Los Angeles as the school district halted normal operations. The union representing bus drivers, maintenance workers, and other support staff is launching a three-day strike, and the teachers are also staying out of school. NPR Sequoia Carrillo is in Los Angeles. Good morning. Good morning. Who's affected? So families are really going to be affected on all sides today. The Los Angeles Unified School District is the second biggest school district in the country with over a thousand schools in operation and more than 400,000 students, the majority of whom live at or below the poverty line and depend on schools for far more than just classroom instruction. Sure. So today, even though schools will be closed, community members and the district know the stakes for many of the students, and they're working with the city and local volunteers to get students things like bagged meals, as well as get childcare for working parents. On top of that, there are, of course, scheduled demonstrations all over the city. I'm heading out this morning to the bus depot, where members of the Service Employees International Union are starting a picket line at 4.30 a.m. That's when school buses normally start their day, but today they're not leaving the depot. There are also rallies at schools and at the district's headquarters as well. Well, what are the workers who will be on those picket lines demanding? So to understand how we got here, we need to understand who is striking, I think. The SEIU represents the support staff of schools. So people like custodians, special education assistants, campus aides, even like playground supervisors. Hmm. These are critical roles that we often don't think about in the operation of a school. But their average salary at LAUSD is about $25,000 per year, with many working part-time. Bottom line, they're asking for a 30% pay raise over four years, and the district has agreed to a 23% raise over a five-year period with bonuses. But the union hasn't responded to the district's last three offers. Well, why would they not? They haven't exactly said why, but it's been a very long and drawn-out fight, and they've suggested in the past that they feel disrespected. But on the other side of this negotiation is the current superintendent, Alberto Carvalho. He's been negotiating with the union for more than a year, all the way up until late last night, 
I spoke with Carvalho yesterday evening, and he said he wasn't leaving the office anytime soon. He's hoping that sometime over the next three days, he can come to an agreement with the union and hopefully shorten this strike. Although even if he does shorten the strike, doesn't he also have a problem with L.A.'s teachers? I wouldn't call it a problem quite yet, but the teachers did have a strike back in 2019 that lasted much longer than this one. It was about six days, and this was prior to Carvalho's tenure. But they're now negotiating a new contract, and they're asking for similar wage increases as the SEIU. But so far, the district hasn't given much, citing concerns over their finances. Well, what is the financial condition? When I spoke with Carvalho, he said LAUSD is existing in a bit of a financial bubble right now. They've had this COVID relief money, federal dollars, for a while, but enrollment is decreasing year over year. It's also hard to keep teachers' positions filled. And Carvalho says he's protecting the longevity of the district with these negotiations. Union leaders say they're protecting their members, who in many cases are living below the poverty line despite working clearly important jobs. And unfortunately, stuck in the middle are the students and parents who will be scrambling today. NPR Sequoia Carrillo in Los Angeles, thanks so much. Thank you. President Biden is creating two new national monuments today. His declarations would protect two spots, one in Nevada, one in Texas, from major development while also keeping them open for recreation. NPR's Jimena Bastillo is covering the story. Good morning. Good morning. Glad you're in our studios here, Studio 31 in Washington, D.C. So what are these places? Well, first, Nevada's Abiquame is also called the Spirit Mountain. That's derived from the Mojave language. Mm -hmm. And it's a massive area over 450,000 acres located in southern Nevada. And it has one of the largest Joshua tree forests. It's a desert, and I haven't been there, but I've seen a lot of pictures on social media, and it seems really beautiful. Oh, I've just been Googling it myself. This is amazing. You see these wide landscapes. You see craggy mountains. You do see those Joshua trees and other desert plants. Really yeah, beautiful. plenty of vegetation. It's a rocky area that's home to plenty of wildlife, like desert bighorn sheep, the desert tortoise, and really big lizards. Um, but a really important thing is that it's also a location for a lot of historical artifacts, and it is the location of the origin stories for about a dozen tribal groups. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that's why the president hinted at the designation during Tribal Nations Summit a few months ago. When it comes to Spirit Mountain and the surrounding ridges and canyons in southern Nevada, I'm committed to protecting this sacred place that is central to the creation story of so many tribes that are here today. So today, he's going to make it official at the Conservation Summit at the Interior Department. Okay, so that's one designation he's making out in Nevada. What's the other? The second is a place called Kastner Range, and it's located next to El Paso in Texas, and it's a part of Fort Bliss. And until the 1960s, it was an actual firing range. These days, it's really known for its carpet of yellow poppies that you can see rolling through the hills. It's probably my favorite of the two, personally, just because of that. I'm now looking at pictures of this, and this is just the yellow. It's just amazing, the yellow in that otherwise deserty kind of landscape. Yeah, and so people want to use it for hiking and camping and 
other outdoor recreation. Um, there's also, however, a lot of unexploded ammunition still remaining from the early 1900s. Do not go for an unsupervised walk out there, I suppose. N no matter how pretty the poppies are. <laughs> the Army is currently conducting a study on how feasible it could be to clean it. So how do these two designations that are coming today fit with Biden's overall record on conservation? Some climate advocates have criticized the president because he recently approved an oil drilling project up in Alaska. But, you know, these projects have also been in the works for some time. And community groups in both states, Nevada and Texas, have been asking for the president to designate these sites. So this isn't necessarily new. Biden came into office pledging to make more of these national monuments. And the first one that he announced was actually in Colorado back in October. NPR's Jimena Bustillo, I feel like I got a little tour of the country in the last few minutes. Thanks so much. Thank you. Glad you came by. Now we turn to Israel, where hundreds of thousands of people have joined street protests against plans by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government to overhaul the judiciary. Netanyahu made some concessions this week, but his government still plans to give the ruling party the power to select judges and overturn Supreme Court decisions. Eric Fingerhut is president and CEO of the Jewish Federations of North America. He joined a group that traveled to Israel to ask for a compromise, and he joins us this morning from Phoenix. Good morning. Eric. Good morning. So Eric, what prompted you, what was the urgency that you got you and your group to get on a plane and head to Israel in this moment? Well, really two reasons. And uh, this was a delegation that uh, represented more than a dozen communities, yeah. about 30 community leaders representing the broader group of 146 Jewish federations. It was two things. First, we wanted to make sure, we know this is largely a domestic debate in Israel, but we wanted to make sure that they understood the deep concern that this is causing in the North American Jewish communities and also the impact that some of the proposals as they were originally made would have, uh, were they enacted uh, as proposed, would have on our relationship. The, the second is we love and care about Israel and we're watching the protests and seeing, you know, increasingly strident debate and families uh, torn apart and, yeah. uh, and, and debates. And so we, you know, we love and care about Israel. And, and when there's risk, we show up and we want to see how we can be helpful. So th those were the motivations. Yeah. And what message did you carry about the concern of American Jews over this? Well, uh, really, we asked for three things. Uh, we, we, as you mentioned earlier, we strongly urged that there be negotiations uh, towards compromise. We particularly urged the, them to uh, work with President Herzog, who has, uh, you know, has offered his good offices for negotiations and uh, and has made some some suggested. Uh, compromise proposals. We urged them not to continue to move the original package forward as as it was uh, currently formulated and on the timetable uh, that it was originally formulated because we really thought that that original package was, you know, w would have been very harmful. And frankly, we've seen progress on that. Are you happy with the concessions? Is that is that enough? Well, there's been some uh, some changes made to one of the elements and, and also 
the timetable uh, for originally they had said they were going to put the whole package through completely final passage before the the break that comes for the Passover holiday soon in, in another week and a half and uh, and and that has not been put off till after the holiday so it gives more time for you know for discussion and, and potential compromise and and thirdly uh, we really do note that um, you know the the essence of democracy, of course, is both majority rule and minority rights, and that's guaranteed through a system of checks and balances. and And we understand that the system of checks and balances in Israel isn't going to look like it is in America or any necessarily any other country in the world. But that there be, we urge that there be a clearly articulated system of checks and balances, so everybody understands how. Uh, how that would work in the entirety of the package. Uh, we didn't think that was reflected in the in the original uh, packages introduced. Uh, again, it's hard to see where you know where that is because we don't know what the final package will look mm-hmm. like. But we do think that message is being heard. Eric Fingerhut of the Jewish Federations of North America. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, we hear from state lawmakers in Montana who consider themselves moderates but feel like they're being pressured to political extremes. And in 20 minutes, the Bolivian Central Bank is struggling to keep up with a growing demand for dollars as Bolivians respond to the country's financial crisis. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. On much of Germany's Autobahn network, you can drive as fast as your car can go. But a movement to introduce a blanket speed limit is gaining momentum, and that is leading to some soul-searching. The Autobahn is connected to a Nazi idea that like all Germans are a harmonious nation. More on the Autobahn's place in German culture on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Fresh off their concert at the Garden last night, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band are adding another summer tour date here. They'll play a second night at Gillette Stadium on August 26th. That's on top of his already announced concert on August 24th. The MBTA has said it will add special train service from South Station for that event. In your forecast, sunny today with a high near 58. It'll also be pretty windy. Tonight, clouds move in and temperatures fall to a low around 39. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high near 52. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 820. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Keeper, a password manager designed to keep passwords secure and protect against cyber attacks. Websites and app logins are accessible across devices, and passwords are shareable. More at KeeperSecurity.com. And from Capital One, 
offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the Association of Plastic Recyclers, whose member companies recycle plastic packaging into new products, working towards a world where everyone uses less by recycling more. Learn more at PlasticsRecycling.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Across the country, the number of states under the control of a single party is at an all-time high. As in many state capitals, efforts to consolidate power in Montana are chipping away at the moderate middle. Montana Public Radio's Shaley Rager reports. At just 21 years old, Representative Mallory Stromswald presided over the Montana House of Representatives for the day back in early January. Members of the committee, please be in order. Her job was to run the show as lawmakers debated and voted on a long list of bills. Members of the committee you have before you for your consideration, House Bill 85. Will the clerk read the title of the bill? The next day, though, the young Republican announced her resignation. She cited a variety of reasons. One definitely being the personal struggles that I have been facing. You know, mental health is hard at this age. And when you're struggling with that and then decide to throw on the challenges of serving and especially the way I chose to serve, which was not aligned with how those around me would have preferred me to at times, it makes it difficult. Stromswald was in her second term. Despite being one of the youngest lawmakers ever elected, she'd established herself as an independent voice in the GOP. She voted against Republican efforts to limit the rights of transgender Montanans and for a Democratic bill aiming to protect the rights of minors. I'm big on principles more than anything. You know, if you're going to say, it's my body, my choice, it's my body, my choice with everything. Stromswald says she was pressured by other lawmakers and others outside the Capitol to fall in line and vote with her caucus. When she didn't, she was ostracized. Stromswald's story is part of a growing pattern. At the Montana GOP convention in July, well-known moderate representative David Beatty was booed for suggesting that Montana's elections are secure. And I think there's plenty of reason to be concerned but not in the state of Montana. Anyone who's looked carefully at uh, anyone speak. Then, last month, the Montana Republican Party voted to formally rebuke former Republican Governor Mark Roscoe. He'd been out of office for more than two decades, but Roscoe used to be a leader in the party nationally. Here's former President George W. Bush describing Roscoe on NPR's All Things Considered in 2001. He knows how to build uh, grassroots organizations. That was back when Bush appointed Roscoe to be chair of the Republican National Committee. Roscoe later went on to lead Bush's 2004 re-election campaign. We'll be able to work as a team very aggressively all the way across the country to make certain that we are fundamentally sound and financially healthy and reaching out in as many different directions as we possibly can. Fast forward 20 years, now Montana GOP members point to Roscoe's endorsements of Democrats over Republicans in recent elections in their rebuking. They say Roscoe, quote, cannot claim with any authority to speak on behalf of Montana Republicans. Roscoe says he is not surprised by his excommunication, but he is concerned. Separating people into factions and pitting them against one and another and trying to appeal to the worst side of our nature 
is not the way to preserve a democracy. Montana State University political scientist Jesse Benyon says the rebuking of Roscoe and the broader trend of the GOP tightening its grip on its members is not exclusive to Montana or Republicans. More and more, both parties are calling for ideological conformity. There is not a lot of room, for instance, a pro-life Democrat these days, when maybe 20 years ago, we saw both kind of liberal and conservatives in each party. Benyon says this kind of consolidation makes it so... The party is much easier to control. In Montana, the state Republican Party holds more power over elected office than any time in about a century. As the Montana GOP seeks to expand that control come 2024, they have their sights set on Democrats' last stronghold in Montana, the U.S. Senate seat held by John Tester. Roscoe could try to stand in their way. Tester so far is the only candidate in the race, but Roscoe says he would endorse the Democrat. He's reasoned, he's moderate, he's capable. In a Montana that's growing deeper and deeper red, it's not clear whether longtime political leaders like Tester and Roscoe can still have the pull they once did. For NPR News, I'm Shaley Riker in Helena, Montana. This Tuesday is World Poetry Day, and we are taking note of this day on NPR. May sound like a cliche that you turn on the news and your public radio station is talking about poetry, but in this case, the cliche is absolutely true. And today we own it. In 1971, the very first year of NPR's All Things Considered, the show featured an anti war poem. Hmm. It was by the French poet Jacques Prévert. Be forewarned, you old guys. Be forewarned, you heads of families. I consider myself warned. In more recent times, Morning Edition has featured other poets. The world keeps ending and the world goes on. Franny Choi wrote of surviving calamities, as did Saeed Jones. But for now, we are alive at the end of the world. Poet and historian Jennifer Michael Hecht has been thinking of the power of poetry. Sometimes when we go to a culture we don't understand and we see something that looks like poetry, we call it religion or spirituality. Hecht wrote a book about poetry called The Wonder Paradox. I think of it as gifts from the subconscious. And in some ways, if you want your subconscious to speak to you, you have to give it words that the subconscious can understand. Gifts from the subconscious. That sounds like poetry. So Mm. why do people feel compelled to write poems? The attempt to express how beauty makes us feel or how sorrow makes us feel is probably real central to our development of language. And Hecht says poetry fits our time. It's because of its brevity and beauty and the fact that it's been built to be read over and over and over. Think of it like an especially compelling tweet, only more thoughtful. (laughs) I like that. I like that. My tweets are poetry, Steve. Oh, I know that. I know that. You know, I sometimes say poetry to warm up my voice in the morning. Once upon a midnight dreary while I pondered weak and weary. Hmm. It's the rhyme. It's the sound of the words. A lot of things to, to love about poetry. This is NPR. What rhymes with news? 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Sorry, not sure what rhymes with news. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, some lawmakers are worried that the Fed may raise interest rates this week without fully understanding how those rates contributed to recent bank failures. It's 829. A quick reminder, the WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the new WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, a performance-driven investment manager navigating challenging financial markets around the globe since 1926. Learn more at loomissales.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. China's president is on the second day of his visit to Moscow, where he's been meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. As NPR's Emily Fang reports, the war in Ukraine has been one of the major issues discussed between Putin and Xi Jinping. This is Xi Jinping's 40th meeting with Putin since he became China's top leader. He's now in Moscow until Wednesday in a clear sign of the importance China puts on Russia. She praised Putin for his revitalization of Russia and called for deepening cooperation. Last month, China released a 12-point position paper laying out its peace plan for Ukraine. It's been calling for a negotiated end to the war, but Ukraine remains wary of China and its plan does not include the return of territory seized by Russia. Russia said it carefully studied the Chinese position paper, but has not said whether it will follow any of it. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. The Biden administration and NATO have expressed concerns that China might decide to provide support to Russia with the war in Ukraine now more than a year old. Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is on an unannounced visit to Kyiv, where he's expected to discuss the war with the country's president, Volodymyr Zelensky. Kishida arrived in Kyiv by train from Poland. The Federal Reserve begins its latest policy meeting today to take a look at interest rates. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Twenty years after the U.S. invasion of Iraq began, Congressman Seth Moulton says the U.S. needs to step up its support for American veterans and their mental health. In the past 20 years, about four times as many American service members have died by suicide as died in combat. Now think about that and think about how much more work we do, we need to do to save veterans from that scourge of suicide today. Moulton made those comments on MSNBC, where he also reflected on his service in Iraq. He served there with the Marines from 2003 to 2008. He says U.S. troops were initially greeted warmly in Iraq because so many people were glad Saddam Hussein was gone. He says sentiment changed as a result of the civil war and the rise of ISIS. Harvard plans to bring in an independent investigator to look into abuse allegations on its women's hockey team. Former players say they were emotionally damaged by coach Katie Stone. A report first published by the Boston Globe shows Stone made racially insensitive comments. Other allegations include body shaming and hazing. Stone is still the head coach of the team. Harvard's athletic director has said there's no place for physical or emotional abuse at the school. 
Governor Healy wants to give more money to an independent state agency that helps victims of crimes. Part of her supplemental budget includes $20 million in funding for the Massachusetts Office for Victim Assistance. That group tells the Eagle Tribune that its funding has been slashed in the last few years, while requests for its services have jumped. Healy's budget still needs approval from state legislators. The choice of graduation speakers is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Except for Harvard graduates. They now know they'll get Tom Hanks this spring. The school's president calls the Oscar-winning actor a master of his craft. Hanks will get an honorary degree at the ceremony, which will be held May 25th. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Habib & Associates Architects. Serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR. HabibARCH.com. In sports, a move toward equity for women, at least when it comes to college hockey, the Women's Beanpot Tournament will be held at the TD Garden next year. It had previously been held at college rinks, while the men's event has been at a pro arena since 1954. The Celtics will end their six-game road trip tonight with a visit to the Sacramento Kings. The Bruins have finished their road trip, and tonight they'll host the Ottawa Senators. At spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox lost to the Pirates 7-5. The Sox will play the Orioles this afternoon. Clear skies and windy today with highs in the upper 50s, mostly cloudy tonight, and we may dip into the 30s. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds will have highs in the low 50s. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with The Confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere. Designed to assist those working from home. More at RemotePC.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The sudden failure of Silicon Valley Bank this month surprised a lot of people. Yeah, but it may not have been a shock to federal regulators. Multiple news reports say they'd been warning about the bank for years before its failure. The Federal Reserve Bank oversees the banking system, so its leaders face questions as they meet in Washington this week. NPR's Scott Horsley will be listening to them as he often does. Hey there, Scott. Good morning, Steve. How much will this bank failure dominate the Fed meeting? It's definitely casting a shadow. It not only influences the Fed's decision about interest rates this week, but the Fed itself is under the microscope for the way its supervisors police Silicon Valley Bank and a second bank that collapsed a few days later. Mm -hmm. A House committee is planning to hold hearings on the subject next week. Here's committee chairman Patrick McHenry of North Carolina on CBS. We need to get to the bottom of whether or not this is a supervisory problem, a regulatory problem, a bank mismanagement problem, perhaps all three. You know, in hindsight, the problems at Silicon Valley Bank are clear. It had really fast-growing deposits, most of which were not insured. It was over-concentrated in the tech industry, which meant a lot of withdrawals when that industry suffered a downturn. And too much of the bank's money was tied up in long-term bonds, which lost value as interest rates rose. So this was a recipe for trouble, and we now know many of those problems were identified by Fed supervisors years ago, but not corrected. Well, sure, it just sounds like math. You can tell that interest rates were going to be going up. 
shop, you know you have a certain number of assets. And if you're smart, if it's your business, you ought to be able to do the math and see the problem coming. So who failed to get the word out? Yeah, Bloomberg, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal all say the bank got multiple warnings about its risk management practices. Uh, the journal says one notice came as far back as 2019. These notices are typically confidential, though. Rutgers economist Eugene White, who's written a lot about bank supervision, says the idea is to quietly correct the problem without damaging a bank's reputation. Hmm. What they don't want to give is a warning not only to the public, but to the financial community in general. And any change in the signal might panic people. Of course, panic is what ultimately ensued at Silicon Valley Bank. We had a massive bank run, and that's when the government had to step in. Help me with some context here. How unusual would it be for a bank to get a bunch of warnings from the Fed and not take action? Yeah, that's hard to know, but it's certainly something people are going to be asking about. We don't know how many other banks have gotten similar notices from Fed supervisors and what steps they've taken to address them. Right after a bank failure like this, there are lots of calls for increased monitoring. But often we hear calls for a lighter touch. Literally days before Silicon Valley Bank went under, Republican senators were complaining about too much bank regulation from the Fed. Dennis Kelleher, who heads the nonprofit watchdog Better Market, says that's no surprise. The power and influence of the financial industry in Washington, D.C. is incredibly widespread and ever-present. And the result is that they are pushing for deregulation at all times. We know that Silicon Valley Bank was spared some of the most stringent bank oversight thanks to a law passed in 2018. What we don't know yet is how that deregulatory atmosphere affected the quality of supervision the bank did get. We may learn more about that in the weeks to come. The Fed's planning to release an internal report by May 1st. And Pierre Scott Horsley, thanks so much. You're welcome. This next story is about another bank run in South America, in Bolivia. The banking problems there are particular to that country's economy and not tied to any of the recent turmoil in the U.S. or Switzerland. NPR's Carrie Kahn has this report. An official with Bolivia's central bank walks the long line stretching three downtown blocks in La Paz. How many dollars will you take, she asks the worried customers. Luisa Zapata says she needs $6,000. A debt has now come due. There have been long lines of banks and exchange houses for weeks as foreign reserves in the Andean nation have nosedived. Zapata spent the night in this line. It was really cold. I didn't have anything good to sleep on, and in the morning it rained and I got soaked, she says. Frustrations erupt when the bank official tells everyone the doors are closing and to try back later. Zapata says, now what? The man she owes wants his dollars now. He's pressuring me. He won't leave me alone, she says. The current crisis is a far cry from the boom years when Bolivia's foreign reserves were flush thanks to a large supply of natural gas. For nearly 20 years, the previous government of leftist Evo Morales and his party's successor used dollars to keep the exchange rate fixed and the economy stable, says Eduardo Gamara of Florida International University. Not only were they using them to support the dollar, but they were using it for public investment, stimulating the economy so that it would grow, right? And especially after COVID, that worked. 
but it's unsustainable. Now natural gas reserves are drying up and the cost of imports are high due to the Ukraine war. Bolivia's dollar accounts have shriveled from 15 billion in 2014 to around 3 billion now. Last week, the rating agency Fitch downgraded Bolivia's debt further into junk territory. Bolivia's finance minister, Marcelo Montenegro, took to state-run TV on Sunday to calm fears. The economic outlook is stable, he said. If it wasn't, then bread prices and transportation costs would be soaring, he added. But the government controls prices, keeping both low, says Bolivian economist Roberto Lacerna. He says it's unclear how much longer, though, they can keep it up. That, of course, will have a huge political cost, because once the price of gasoline goes up, the price of transportation will go up, and every good, every service will, will go up as well. On the same day the finance minister insisted all was well, former President Evo Morales publicly disagreed. Morales told a group of party faithful things are not well economically. More state spending on the poor and elderly is the answer, he added. But 42-year-old Mariel Cathin needs help now, to the tune of $20,000. I've tried at exchange houses. I waited seven hours at the central bank, she says. Like many in Bolivia, she has to pay her rent in dollars and two years up front. It's a big headache, she says. And she worries her country's banking troubles aren't going to get better anytime soon. Carrie Kahn, NPR News. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, Nina Totenberg tells us about a court fight over Jack Daniels as the Supreme Court prepares to hear from lawyers about that trademark, free speech, and dog poop. Listen on your smart speaker by asking for NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, Boston's Lyric Opera is at Flynn Cruiseport in South Boston this week for the revival of a 1918 opera based on a French fairy tale. We have a preview. Then at 9, it's the BBC News Hour. This morning, a focus on the world's first professional police force created in London. A new independent report into the force calls it a broken model that is an old boys club filled with misogyny and racism. In your forecast, sunny and windy today in the upper 50s, partly overcast tonight in the upper 30s, tomorrow partly sunny and in the low 50s. It's 41 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote. Returning for the first time in more than 10 years. On stage now through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Boston-based startup Flare is being acquired. The company makes smart bracelets meant to help prevent sexual assault. It's being bought by Smart Alert Holdings. The terms of the deal are not public. Flare says the deal will allow it to enhance safety-related communication services for its users. The CEO of Cambridge-based Moderna says the nearly $400 million he made from stock sales last year is going to charity. That amounts to about $176 
$6 million after taxes. The Boston Business Journal reports local charities like Embrace Boston and the Posse Foundation received some of the funds. Kelly's Roast Beef says it will open its seventh location in Dedham this summer. The company says the storefront is currently under construction along Providence Highway. The restaurant chain currently has four locations in Massachusetts, with another opening soon in Worcester. It's 845. WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts Catering, full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings, Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This week, the Boston Lyric Opera will premiere Bluebeard's Castle. It's a 1918 work from a Hungarian composer, Bela Bartok. In this production, audiences will be immersed in a multi-room installation, all inside Boston's largest cruise port. WBUR's Jen Stanley attended a rehearsal to learn more. Bluebeard's Castle is based on a French folktale about a fictional duke who brings his hastily wed wife Judith to his foreboding fortress for the first time. It's dark and there's blood on the walls, and she quickly senses there is something very wrong. Here's director Anne Bogart. She notices that there are seven doors, and she says, Dear husband, can I go through those doors and see what's there. And he says, no, 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 not a good idea. You don't know what lies behind there. Scholars have long debated whether the castle's horrors are meant to be literal or figurative, but Bogart says she interprets it as an allegory for hypermasculine sexuality. I think male sexuality is dark and labyrinthian, has rules and mythology. And women's is uh, brighter, and women talk a lot. It's not so secretive. And so those two extremes meeting is very interesting to me. Eventually, Bluebeard allows her to open the doors to find his torture chamber, a room full of riches, a lake of tears, and more. She gets to the seventh door, and after much protest, he relents, revealing his castle's darkest secret. As she had begun to suspect were the wives that he had had before, who were living in a state of half-dead, half-alive, and um, she joins them in that horrible state. So in a sense, he murders his wives. Bluebeard's Castle is a one-act opera that's typically paired with another piece of music. For this production, Bogart chose four songs by Alma Mahler, who was a great composer in her own right. She wrote the cycle before her marriage to Gustav Mahler. Many, many famous artists who all loved her and wanted to possess her. And every time she entered into one of these relationships, she quashed her own creativity. And so this contrast between Alma Mahler and the, the world of Bluebeard's castle is really a war between women and men. The opera stars American-based baritone Ryan McKinney as Bluebeard and Irish mezzo-soprano Naomi Louisa O'Connell as Judith. Bluebeard's six previous wives are performed by members of Boston-based VLA Dance. At rehearsal, founder and choreographer Victoria Lynn Awkward works with Bogart to capture the physicality of women surviving their oppression. You know, this is the first time we've really put the wives' moves with this, yeah. and it was yeah. so great. Yeah. You backed up and they all went like that. That was fantastic. 
Awkward says they were inspired by 19th century photographs of women who'd been institutionalized for hysteria, a broad term that generally encompassed anything a woman did that wasn't viewed as acceptable behavior. And so that's a theme that the wives have is this like inverted hands, these gestures that look a little unhuman-like, um, and that they get progressively more unhuman-like, progressively more unhinged, especially as Judith and Bluebird are also getting more unhinged as well. Bogart says they took liberties to create an unexpected ending that differs from Bartok's original intention. We have six dancers who portray, in a way, all women whose creativity has been squashed, and they maybe take revenge. For those daring enough to peek behind its doors, Bluebeard's Castle will be docked at the Flynn Cruise Port in South Boston from tomorrow through Sunday, March 26th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jen Stanley. River of red, river of blood. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, why the recent bank failures may lead to lenders being more selective about who gets loans. And coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Scott Tong is on the line to tell us what's on the show. Hi there, Scott. Rupa, hey, good morning. I have a question for you. What's that? At your editorial meetings, do you and your team ask, you know, where is the joy and the hope in the world that we can bring in, you know, in a... In a news business where there's so much challenge and tragedy in the world. Oh, definitely. I mean, you, you try to specifically say, oh, wait, focus wait. on that. Where is the joy? Well, we have a moment on that, on our, or a couple moments of that on uh, Here and Now today. One of them is a great story on Asian American elders who are ballroom dancers. And they're returning to the floor even after, after that horrific shooting in Monterey Park, California, mm-hmm. where a lot of Chinese Americans live. They refuse to be deterred, and they're rejoining their dance community, and we'll have a great feature on that. And 20 years after the Iraq War, we'll have a fascinating reporter's notebook. Uh, NPR editor Larry Kaplow will talk about being there in the early days of the invasion and the early occupation, looking back. A couple things on the show today, Deepa. Arupa, sorry. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. That's here and now today at noon. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, mental health care mandated by a court. Massachusetts is one of only three states where a judge can't mandate outpatient mental health care, should they be able to. From the newsroom, reporter Deborah Becker takes us into the debate. That's Radio Boston Today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Upper 50s today under clear skies. It'll also be windy. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston at 851. The government is poised to guarantee deposits at smaller banks over and above the traditional quarter million dollar limit. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon in stores or at hintwater.com. I'm David Brancaccio. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is set to announce that all deposits at smaller banks would be insured, not just those $250,000 or under, if that becomes necessary. 
It's in the advanced text of a speech Yellen is set to make this morning, suggesting what was done at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank could be done elsewhere. If it comes to that, here's Marketplace's Nova Safo. In prepared comments for a bankers conference in Washington, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen emphasized that steps taken by regulators to date have been aimed at protecting bank customers and at maintaining a diverse banking system. She said similar actions could be warranted if smaller banks remain at risk of suffering a crisis of confidence. Yellen did not address the idea of guaranteeing all bank deposits, even above the $250,000 limit, to stem the banking crisis. Some conservative lawmakers have said they would oppose such move. The current banking mess could hit personal finances of people even if all their deposits are guaranteed. It could make many banks pickier when deciding who gets loans. Marketplace's Samantha Fields has that. At the risk of stating or even understating the obvious, the world of banking and finance is dynamic right now. That's a word Mark Hamrick, senior economic analyst at Bankrate, is using a lot these days, along with volatile and uncertain. And he says that presents risks for consumers, namely. That it's going to be increasingly challenging for some borrowers to get access to credit. And where they do get access to that credit, it's going to be potentially more expensive. Because banks and other financial institutions are going to be looking for ways to manage their risk, partly by holding on to more of their money in an environment where the risks of a recession in the near term are seen to have risen. People with good credit scores probably don't have too much to worry about. The people who will be crowded out by that kind of tightening of credit standards are people with sort of more marginal credit scores and people who have had trouble with debt in the past, people with low or erratic incomes. Josh Bivens, chief economist at the Economic Policy Institute, says this isn't happening yet, but I think bank lending standards are going to get noticeably tighter in the next couple of weeks and months. Unless this whole dynamic situation resolves quickly and banks and consumers feel more confident and stable again. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. Stocks Dow and S&P futures are up in the eight-tenths of a percent range. The Federal Reserve begins meeting today with an interest rate decision tomorrow. If the banking mess slows economies around the world, less oil would be needed. Crude oil has been falling and remains below $69 a barrel this morning versus 120 in June. Here's Marketplace's Lily Jamali. Fernando Valley of Bloomberg Intelligence calls the banking sector's troubles a wake-up call. It creates a fear of contagion and the impact that it could have on consumption and ultimately investments across the Western Hemisphere and then globally at a larger scale. He says oil's current slump can also be traced in part to China, where demand was expected to rebound more than it has following the phase-out of lockdowns there. Meanwhile, Mark Finley of Rice University says analysts have been bracing for Russia to cut production in response to Western sanctions on Russian energy commodities, including oil. But that hasn't been the case so far. Russia's been able to find new markets for its oil. Finley says for consumers, a $10 per barrel decline, like the one we saw last week, could translate into a drop in gas prices on the order of about 25 cents a gallon. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects not just done, but done well. Reviews, pricing, and booking at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And by Vantage Score. Vantage Score's credit scoring models help expand financial inclusion by leveraging predictive analytics at VantageScore.com. 
After Silicon Valley Bank went kaflui the other day, most pointed to possible mismanagement at the bank, maybe lax government supervision and rising interest rates as causes. But there are people arguing SVB's problem was that it paid some attention to ESG, environmental social governance risks. Julian Mark, business and technology reporter at The Washington Post, looked at this hypothesis. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So you've been fact-checking this claim, separate from whether one likes or doesn't like ESG investing. The claim that ESG played an important part of Silicon Valley Bank's demise is the question. How do you answer that? I mean, it. <laughs> I don't think there's any evidence that this type of investing or diversity initiatives contributed to the demise of Silicon Valley Bank. It was more of a perfect storm of complex financial matters. So what, where's this claim coming from? It's a talking point for people who see ESG as carrying out a liberal agenda versus, a, I don't know, a business agenda, if one reads business agenda as necessarily conservative? Yeah, I mean, ESG has become more or less a boogeyman among, you know, some conservatives who say that, you know, this investing, which includes environmental considerations, social considerations and uh, corporate governance considerations, you know, during investing, you know, is an interruption of free markets, you know, sort of injecting liberal ideals into investing. So there has been a lot of sort of undercurrents and Silicon Valley Bank's fall kind of presented an opportunity to sort of create more or less a cautionary tale for what could happen to a bank that adopts these policies. Of course, not supported by evidence. No, I suppose we should point out that thinking about investments with environmental, social and governance issues in mind is not just for the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. You have some stalwarts of Wall Street that have embraced this way of thinking because of the idea that in the longer run, considering ESG factors may end up uh, paying off as an investment. Correct. These are movers and shakers of the financial system, including BlackRock. They control trillions in assets. And ESG is really at its core, it's data, they're measurements, and it could be used many different ways. And it depends on how you want to use them. But some of these companies purely use them to assess risks, you know, upcoming risks to businesses and, you know, even to capture value. So there are many who say that this is purely just good investing, just a good way of measuring risk. Julian Mark is business and technology reporter at The Washington Post. Mr. Mark, thanks. Thank you. And it's the Marketplace Morning Report. We are from APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell has told cities and towns they have to zone for multifamily housing projects near transit stations. But some communities are resisting that requirement. So what comes next? That issue is the focus of today's episode of The Common. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a great first full day of spring today. Sunny, windy, and near 60. Tonight it falls back to the 30s and some clouds move in. Tomorrow a little cooler in the low 50s under partly sunny skies. It's 42 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Waterstone Lexington, a new luxury independent and assisted living community. With social and wellness programs and fine dining next to Belmont Country Club, waterstonelexington.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. 
Today on Radio Boston, mental health care mandated by a court. Massachusetts is one of only three states where a judge can't mandate outpatient mental health care, should they be able to. From the newsroom, reporter Deborah Becker takes us into the debate. That's Radio Boston Today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Isbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The BBC News. Hello, this is Jerry Smith.